Hello and welcome to this latest edition of the FT Advisor podcast. I'm David Thorpe, Investment Editor at FT Advisor. Today we are discussing the outlook for global equities in 2023. While the world is gripped by inflation and growth shocks, most equity markets endured a torrid 2022. But with perhaps some signs inflation may be close to peaking and much bad news already baked into equity valuations, what does 2023 have in store for us? Joining me to discuss the outlook are Alex Illingworth, who runs the Artemis Global Select Fund and the Midwind Investment Trust, Stephen Annes, Head of Global Equities at Invesco, and Wayne Berry, Investment Director at RBC Bruin Dolphin. Thank you all for joining me today. Stephen, good morning. If we if we start with, with you, um, what lessons from the performance of equities in 2022 can we take into this new year? Um, right, well, morning, David. Uh, well, look, thanks for having me. Um, look, I, I think there was a few things that were, were, were clearly important last year that we need to think about. Um, and look, probably the first one of those is that valuation is actually important. Um, and I think... Yeah, we, we lived through a sort of decade where, um, you know, sort of factor-based investing around growth and quality, you know, worked and, and, and for good reason, frankly. But I think, you know, what happened was the elastic became stretched um, and and actually there were some you know, pretty good companies that were, were on sale. And I think, you know, that that sort of mindset shift is, is you know, was, was well baked in, I think, to people's minds. And, and now that's changing. Um, look, I think also... Um, and one of the things, I mean, just just to mention, um, you know, I run the Global Equity Income Fund, and I think you know that's one of the kind of key things. I think is that income will will perhaps be a bit more important, and you know, we've seen that um, this year as well. And I think that's something that people might want to think about for their portfolios um, as we uh, as we go forward. Um, so, look, I think you know those are, those are really some of the key things. And look, obviously, macro, yeah, we're all. You know, very much into the weeds on on stocks, but I think you know sometimes the macro can have a quite substantial impact on asset prices, and you know we saw that this year as well. So you know maintaining some balance within the portfolio, I think, given how volatile the macro is, will be will be key as we go forward, not just into twenty twenty three, but beyond as well. Thank you, um, Wayne. Uh Twenty twenty two was a, a brutal year, I'm sure, for for everyone and everyone's clients. But what have you taken from the past year to to bring into the year ahead? Um, I would agree with uh, with what Stephen was saying. I think valuation did become stretched. Uh, liquidity being withdrawn has had quite a substantial impact on valuations. The one thing that we I don't think we have seen just yet is the reduction in forecasts and profitability if we do if and when we do enter recession. And just to echo the point on income, I think income is going to be a huge driver of return over the next few years. Thank you. Um, and Alex, just to demonstrate, there is some method in my, my madness. Stephen's <laughs> here wearing an, an income hat. The, the mandates that you run at, at Artemis are, are less focused on, on global uh, income. So from a, a kind of a growth perspective, what was 2022 like for you and... How is it influencing what you do this year? Uh, well, obviously, I'd have to second that valuation always matters, and 2022 was the, the evidence of that. And if you want to put some numbers around that, the S&P 500, the US benchmark equity index, saw its multiple contract by 22%, but actually the earnings number on the aggregate for the, for the index rose by 3%. So the damage was done at the um, uh, um, at the, uh, um, at the multiple level. 
Um, what I would say is, to try and duck your question slightly, would be to say that one of the great surprises of last year was how much money you could lose in the bond market. <clears throat> and I think in this environment, what you absolutely need is companies that can deal with an inflationary backdrop. And whether they choose to pay dividends or they choose um, to go for growth, I think if they go for growth, they've got to prove that high growth leads to high profitability. But in any event, the equ um, equities have a good chance of delivering those real returns that investors are after. And uh, Wayne, given how dominant macro themes such as Fed policy were in 2022 and, and are right now, what does diversification actually look like in, in the world that we are in? Um, that's an interesting one because uh, I think a lot of people thought they had diversified portfolios last year but performed quite similarly. Um, I think the old adage, don't fight the Fed, came home to, to roost last year. Um, the <sighs> diversification benefits didn't really provide much diversification depending on what kind of, uh, what kind of assets you owned. Uh, in some way, shape, or form, anything the Fed does will have an impact on on assets. Generally, I mean, they 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 set the interest rate for the U.S. Treasury, and that is what the risk-free rate is. Therefore, everything else has to price from that. Um, so, diversification-wise, um, some high, even the best quality equities performed uh, negatively, with the exception of the energy sector, uh, generally, but. One thing that was quite evident last year is how a lot of people were in a crowded trade and didn't necessarily notice that. Thank you. And Stephen, um, as, a, as an equity income guy, but also a global equity investor, how are you thinking about diversification within in portfolios right now? Um, you know, I think, I mean, if you break down where equity returns come from, I mean, it's, you know, obviously it's earnings growth, it's dividends, and it's the sort of valuation, i.e., you know, multiples, the D rating or re rating. And, and I think, you know, look, trying to avoid risk and find opportunity uh, next year on sort of all three of those um, uh, uh, facets would be important. And so, you know, look, we're, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we don't want to get bogged down in the sort of, you know, value versus growth debate. I mean, we, you know, we're trying to find good companies when they're on sale and there are lots of good companies on, on, on sale at the moment still. They might be in different parts of the world. Um, and, you know, obviously we've seen in the last few weeks a remarkable U-turn in China on, on COVID and, and reopening. Um, yeah, there will be, you know, positive things stemming from that in, in terms of travel, in terms of spending. Um, you know, so I think, you know, we, as a global investor, it is it is it is easy to diversify across different geographies and different sectors where where actually you know there might be some some sort of positive tailwinds. Look, I think when the point was made earlier um, that we may well be in a period where we start to see some earnings cuts. I think that's that's very fair. But you know, in, even in the most difficult markets, you know, there are normally areas where you can find something good going on and finding some companies with some resilient growth. I totally agree with Alex's point, you know, finding companies which can um, manage through a more inflationary environment and perhaps one where inflation is quite volatile. Um, and I think that's something that we should all be prepared for. I think perhaps macro volatility leading to more market volatility. I think the last 10 years, again, have been characterized really by quite low levels of volatility um, from a macro perspective. And, and perhaps, you know, those, those types of things will... Um, will will pick up um so i think um being diversified by factor and by 
um, geography will be important. And and that's why you know, we're trying to be reasonably balanced in the portfolio. I, I don't want to, the portfolio to work for only one particular macro outcome. You know, we, I, I really hope, frankly, we get back to an era where stock picking is the key driver of returns. Thank you. And um, Alex, uh, how, how do you, uh, how, how, how are you trying to diversify right now? I mean, I, um, is it a factor-based thing? Is it a, is it a macro call thing? What, what do you do? I think it's a very interesting topic of conversation because actually over the last decade or so, diversification, in fact, not only hasn't mattered, has been the wrong thing to do. Mm-hmm. But that was an era of cheap money, which we probably all agree is less likely to happen in the future than it has in the past. And so we really don't think you want to run your portfolios trying to forecast inflation. Extremely difficult job. Uh, so you do want to be diversified by sector and by country. And of course, what we're experiencing now are different interest rate phases, inflation pressures um, around, around the world. And just, you know, to give some evidence of this, obviously, you, last year was good for the US dollar, but there was a sharp reversal in Q4. And um, yet, in our portfolio over the last three months, we've made nearly 50% in sterling terms in Japanese banks. Mm-hmm. And that's um, a function of the yen strengthening and a slightly better, i.e. for them, higher inflation, um, inflation ba- um, backdrop. And these are little talked about parts of the market, on very, very, very cheap um, multiples. And it just shows that you can make 50% of your money in three months, not just by investing in US technology companies. I mean, you know, Stephen mentioned, Stephen mentioned China. I think Alibaba's up 80% from the bottom. So there are substantial returns to be had in some maybe less traditional areas. And that's why you need that diversification, ever more so than you've ever needed than in the last decade. Thank you. Well, after um, talking about inflation and diversification, um, if inflation does drift materially lower during this year, and I'm not asking you to comment on whether it will or not, I can do the hypothesis and get shot at, you get to do the sensible bit, Um which parts of the equity market would, would be expected to benefit most? Would you react at the portfolio level to that, Alex? So we probably are at peak inflation or even perhaps past peak inflation. So to use a word that was much bandied and much disparaged last year, transient, the big question is, uh, is whether falling inflation proves to be transient or actually inflation um, turns out to be a little bit more sticky than people have suspected, which... It has, has, has happened in the past. But in the scenario that you're painting, that would probably help US consumer discretionary stocks, probably help Asian manufacturing stocks that sell in um, to the US consumer because people will have the expectation that either rates won't have to go any higher or indeed in, um, interest, interest rates uh, may fall. I think we're not really going to f- focus our portfolio on trying to forecast what's going to going to happen to inflation, but just stay with some companies that can deal with most inflation scenarios, and definitely not go back to buying highly indebted companies. You, you know, one conclusion of what you're saying is if, if money becomes cheap again, then you can have debt fueled growth, and I think that that is one of those sort of risks not worth taking. Thank you, um, Stephen. If we do get uh, lower inflation. Would you start to see opportunities pop up in in different areas, perhaps than was the case in in twenty twenty two? Yeah, look, I, I would I'd, I'd agree with everything Alex said. Really, um, I think those would be the areas where we're likely to see a sort of positive rebound. I, look, I think, for, as I said, I don't really want to predict inflation either. And as 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 we said, that's your hypothesis. Um, I think it also depends on how quickly inflation falls 
relative to where Fed rates are likely to go. And if inflation can, and it is falling pretty quickly, actually. I mean, the last few months have been really interesting. If that continues to fall and some of the service and and um, sort of housing-related inflation falls quickly and reduces the pressure on the Fed, then, then you know, obviously there's less chance of the Fed raising rates to a point where, you know, the, the economy really does um, take an absolute whack. Um, so that's something to, I think, consider is just how quickly that happens. But I would agree in terms of the sectors, um, those would be the ones that benefit. I, I perhaps would also throw into the mix some, you know, alternative finance businesses such as, um, you know, KKR, because actually whilst there is leverage within those those businesses, and I would agree with Alex's points on that, you know, actually some of those companies have, you know, very robust uh, locked up capital generating fees. And I think if, if there was less pressure on rates, um, you know, and, and and credit, then we may see some of those areas uh, uh, start to recover as well, because there's some quite interesting structural growth stories there. Thank you. Um, Wayne, from your point of view, when you're putting together uh, portfolios for clients at RBC, Brew and Dolphin, how, how would inflation change change the calculus for you? In terms of the assets that we would like to own in that scenario, I absolutely agree. Um, with what's already been said there. Um, I mean, there's been a lot of talk since since the financial crisis, since the era of cheap money began, of zombie companies being propped up by the, the low cost of debt. Um, you would want to avoid anything with <clears throat> a high level of debt versus their earnings, uh, and if their earnings aren't likely to grow. So financials do kind of fit that that bill that they have high debt to their earnings, but their earnings should grow in a high interest rate environment. So they're less of a concern, but some things like some of the REITs that are highly indebted, um, the the interest payment to their to their actual profit margins are quite quite substantial. So it's avoiding those ones, but making sure that we can we can benefit from from well, a reopening in China as well, which is potentially inflationary. But uh one one area which has already been mentioned is Japan, the one area of the world that probably wants inflation more than most. Um, so yeah, it's it's not all bad. It's not all bad. Thank you, um, Alex. Unusually for me, I did some research before I came in to speak to you today, and one of the things that I uh, discovered in this research is that uh, a couple of the funds that you run at Artemis have uh, slightly higher UK. Uh, allocations than has been the case perhaps for much of the past decade and the FTSE actually performed okay relative to other markets in 2022 are you seeing more opportunities in well I guess what we would call it our domestic market although it's not that for for global equity guys um, so just to be to be clear the the stocks that we have in the UK are mostly global 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 leaders they mm-hmm. happen to be mm-hmm. listen in the UK um, I, I mean what I just would say about the UK is it, it does have an um, fortunate history of sticky and persistent inflation and obviously we've got ongoing and as yet unresolved strikes um, to um, to boot so you know whilst if things sort themselves out later later in the year then there's plenty of opportunity in the UK the valuations still look fantastic and employment levels are really are really pretty high Um, I'm just chastened that in the past, inflation has been very sticky. Sticky here, obviously, we're importing inflation through a cheap currency, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, when we're not looking in your environment, in your scenario from the previous question about going back to a two percent level, uh, if we're looking for US, cons- if we're looking for consumer discretionary stocks, it probably wouldn't be the UK that we go to first. 
Not ruling it out, but wouldn't be the UK we go to first. Thank you. Um, Stephen and Invesco, how do you how do you think about the the domestic market right now? I mean, I guess one of the reasons it did okay in 2022 was was around both the, the value factor which is present in the FTSE and also perhaps the starting valuation being a bit lower than some other markets in the new year. Are those tra- trends likely to continue to be as important? Yeah, look, I, I would agree. As you say, I mean, the UK market is dominated by you know, some of the some of the large uh, commodity companies, both energy and, and, and metals and mining. Um, yeah, that that was obviously a huge help. Um, you know, some some big healthcare companies as well, and, and utility companies. But it's also a market that you know has struggled to grow um, um, in terms of earnings you know, uh, over the last sort of decade or so, and that's why it was a cheap market to start with. Um, so, look, in terms of our UK exposure, um, similar to to Alex, really, we have we do have substantial UK holdings. Most of those are international earners. Um, so look, I think it really are our, our focus very much as individual stock picking. And I think there are some great companies in, in the UK um, that you know, we're, we're very keen on. Um, look, I, I think, yeah, as Alex mentioned, you know, sort of consumer discretionary, look, we, we did buy a UK consumer discretionary stock um, in, in the autumn time around the uh, sort of um, Quateng uh, mini mini budget um, uh, issue. Um, yeah, there were some pretty interesting opportunities in UK there, but some of those things I think have have rallied quite quickly. But I think that you know touches on our point earlier about being you know open to to, to sort of pounce on volatility. Um, so look, I I don't necessarily have a strong view as to whether the UK will outperform other markets. I think it really depends on your view on some of those macro factors around commodity prices because that will be one of the key determinants of the relative strength. Of, of those UK businesses. Thank you. And um, Wayne, when you're when you're putting together equity portfolios for clients, do you think about it geographically or in a different way? And what role does the UK play? Uh, we do to a degree. I mean, we'll always have we we do try to have a diversified, but but it comes to the stock level, not the, necessarily the geographical level. Um, and just to echo what's already been said, I mean, I would buy something listed in the UK if it was best in class. I'm not going to buy something in the UK just for the sake of having something in the UK. And whilst the FTSE has done very well, comparatively, in the past 12 months, the FTSE 250, which is more indicative of UK PLC, has not done quite so well. So the UK market is and will remain volatile. I mean, coming back to Alex's inflation point, um, if you strip out the pandemic, so from 2010 to 2020, in those 10 years... Inflation was only below the 2% target three times. It was above it seven times. So inflation is a bit stickier here. The currency is depreciated or has depreciated quite a lot since, uh, well, since the last decade, really. Um, So, yeah, we don't, don't pick anything on pure geography. It has to be on the basis that it can add value to portfolios. Thank you. And um, Alex, at the other end of that uh, 2022 uh, spectrum, if the FTSE 100 performed okay, US technology shares sold off quite markedly. Uh, Have we reached a point where valuations are potentially starting to make some of those uh, attractive again? Uh, In a word, no. (laughs) Um, But let me put some context around that. I mean, firstly, I would acknowledge that a lot of damage has been done. Um, So the NASDAQ was down nearly a third last year. 
if you look at the most expensive stocks globally, I think they derated from a multiple of 43 times, a price earnings multiple, to 30 and a half times over the years. So a lot of damage has been done. And I know that still seems like a high multiple, but some of these companies really are worth it. I just think, as I sort of alluded to earlier, but I just think these high-growth companies need to demonstrate they have highly profitable business models. And I'm sure that the largest companies can cope with that, but it might mean paying dividends, it might mean paying their employees more cash, less um, less stock-based compensation. And you know, David, that transition might just take a little bit longer than people expect, and it might be more damaging for equity values than many people many people believe. So still erring on the side of caution as it comes to US technology. Thank you. And um, Stephen, at, uh, at Invesco, you, you mentioned, and it's certainly part of the Invesco DNA, I guess, uh, the importance of valuation in the, in the investment process. Um, we've seen technology shares become cheaper, but have they become cheaper enough to be, to be interesting yet? It's quite interesting, actually. I, mean, I, I suppose given where I'm sort of coming from as an income manager and espousing the virtues of, of, of valuation earlier, I, I slightly disagree with, with Alex. Um, I, I would disaggregate between the sort of unprofitable tech um, um, and, and some of the more speculative business models. And, and I'd you know, compare those to some of the other companies which have very proven business models, some of the larger cap tech companies. And look, I think we've seen a reset of expectations. I think you know, valuations have come down a long way, but some of these businesses are incredibly cash generative. They have incredibly strong balance sheets. And if you look at sort of free cash flow to enterprise value to take account of that balance sheet strength, some of them are now trading at multiples which are which are reasonable. Now, obviously, you know, this comes back to the stock picking point. You have to decide where you think those earnings expectations have reset to realistic levels. And I'm sure there are further cuts to come. But I do think there are you know, areas that are, are getting a bit more interesting. So, you know, for example, you know, NVIDIA has, I think, more than halved from its peak uh, in 2021. You know, that we think is a very interesting business, um, has, has a, you know, a, a incredibly strong position in in, in leading edge um, uh, chips um, in terms of AI and machine learning and things. So, you know, it would be impossible to replicate that business starting from today. Now, to Alex's point, the starting multiple is still very high, but the further we look out, and if we take a genuine sort of three to five year time horizon, actually some businesses like that do start to look quite interesting um, from a from a a, a, a return potential uh, standpoint, so I, look, we we haven't sort of moved wholesale that way yet, but I think there are, I think there are opportunities beginning to emerge. Albeit you have to be very careful, you know, trying to get your um trying to get your earnings numbers right because there's no prizes for for profit warnings at the moment, obviously. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen and um, Wayne. Uh, I, there are many different ways as a fund buyer or, or whatever that you can access um, US technology stocks, whether it's bespoke funds or whether it's global mandates such as such as Alex and Stephen run. But how are you thinking about that exposure right now? Um, it is much more interesting than it was this time last year um, for all of the reasons that have already been mentioned. We've got some very, very big and very well-known names that have been decimated, to, for want of a better word. I mean, think to think that 
Amazon was racing towards a $2 trillion market cap, and it's now below a trillion, um, and with all of the growth potential that Amazon have. But growth for the sake of growth is not necessarily the game we want to be playing in. So compare Amazon to Microsoft. Microsoft is more utility-like. It would sit under the tech umbrella, but, I mean, would you say post-COVID that Microsoft is any less relevant to our lives today than it was 2020? Well, actually, no, it's more so. Uh, so to have a valuation that's either smaller or comparable to two years ago, I think it, it creates an opportunity in certain pockets of the tech sector. But I mean, you have to be selective there. Thank you for that, uh, Wayne Berry. Uh, and... And thank you to Alex Illingworth, who runs the Artemis Global Select Fund and the Midwind Investment Trust at Artemis. Stephen Annis, Head of Global Equities and Equity Income Manager at Invesco. And Wayne Berry, Investment Director at RBC Bruin Dolphin. And thank you all for listening. Please do remember to tune in to future editions of the FT Advisor podcast. Goodbye. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.